Thank you. Thank you, Stacy and Susan, two MCs this morning. That's awesome, getting us ready for a hot topic. Uh, if I asked you what Matthew 5 through 7 is about, uh, how would you answer? Uh, it's a very familiar chunk. Did someone say it? Okay, yes. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this beautiful teaching by Jesus that is well-respected uh, by people throughout the centuries. And he closes the Sermon on the Mount with four strong warnings, four cautions, uh, basically saying, you know, if you don't listen to, if you don't respond rightly uh, to this teaching, uh, there's a strong warning associated with that or a caution associated with that. Uh, the first of the four warnings is found in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, uh, where Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus warning these hearers, you must uh, enter by the narrow gate, one way to eternal life, faith and trust in Christ, repentance of our sins. Uh, there are a plethora of other ways to God, but those are not the right ways. We must place our trust in Christ and turn from our sins. We have to keep on following the narrow gate, the narrow road. Well, if that's true, then there are only really two ways to live our life. One would be on the wide gate and one would be on the narrow gate. And, you know, as we think through hot topics, as we close our year, our Bible study year with different hot topics, uh, we think through things that are uh, advancing against uh, the Christian faith, that are attacking the Christian faith, that are attacking uh, God and really uh, his authority and his authority as revealed through the scriptures. So that's why we look at hot topics. We look at maybe what's trending in our culture. Uh, we look at different ideas from outside of Christianity and from within Christianity as well that have the potential to take people from the narrow gate and lead them over to the wide gate, the wide gate that leads to death and destruction. And so our hot topics are here to equip you uh, as you spend the summer out in conversations, maybe at the beach, at pools, picnics, uh, activities with your kids, activities together. You again have conversations. When you hear of these things, when these things come up, you'll know what they are and how to address them. So this year we're looking at a topic called deconstruction. Uh, deconstruction is the latest and greatest attack on the church, so to speak. And it is trending among many who would identify as or call themselves Christians. So uh, this isn't, again, a typical women's Bible study session. It's going to feel very classroom-like, and you're going to feel tempted to want to write notes on everything that I say. And I'm just going to say don't. 
uh, because there's so much information and so many words that are going to be on these slides, and I'll walk you through it, and I'll point out things every now and then, like if you want to take notes, jot this down or take this note or whatever, but trying to get this all down will be overwhelming and exasperating. So here we go. We're going to start our little mini course in deconstructing deconstruction. First is get familiar with deconstruction, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the next few minutes just getting familiar with what this is. Uh, this is, again, a trending attack upon the church, and we need to get familiar with it. So if you are taking notes, write down the point. That'd be great. Points are good. Now, deconstruction, the term, was coined originally by a French philosopher uh, by the name of Jacques Derrida. Uh, if you want to write down his name, you can. Uh, it's worth remembering Jacques Derrida. But uh, he published a book in 1967 called Of Grammatology. Uh, again, he was a philosopher, and that's where this term originally comes from. Uh, Jacques Derrida built upon the work of Ferdinand Saussure, and Ferdinand Saussure, you probably don't even need to write down his name, he, uh, his idea, his thinking, his work, uh, basically said from a philosophical standpoint that we can never really know the meaning of words uh, because every word, in a sense, is loaded. Like when you think of the word cat, you might think of something very different than what I think of when I think of the word cat. Uh, when we think of the word cat, we're going to think, well, it's not a dog. So what do you think of when you think of dog? Uh, when you think of cat, you're going to think of something furry. What does furry mean to you? What does furry look like to you? You're going to think of something four-legged. What other four-legged animals do you think of? So on and on it goes, and to the point where we can say that, you know, it's uh, very hard to get the meaning of a word, according to this philosophy. Derrida went a little bit further, and he said that, you know, throughout uh, history, we've always preferred one term over the other when we have these binary terms. Don't bother to write this stuff down. So there's like male and female, light and darkness, uh, life and death, happy and sad. And one is always preferred over the other. And so deconstruction, we've got to think through these things. So deconstruction from this very uh, philosophical standpoint, again, coming around in the 60s and the 70s, basically said that we need to explore the tensions and the contradictions uh, in this hierarchical ordering assumed in the text and other text and words. We need to look at which one's preferred, why is it preferred. We need to deconstruct that or think through that. And having read books and watched many videos, it's a very complex and very hard to understand philosophical idea. Uh, even Derrida himself couldn't really define deconstruction in exact terms. And at one point when asked, he said, just look at my life's work and then you'll know what deconstruction means. So again, it's very, uh, it's very difficult to define, but it is the root of this attack against the church today. Uh, he said there was a term, in fact, he coined this term, uh, difference. It's difference spelled with an A instead of an E. 
Uh, remember, he's a French philosopher, and actually in French, the word difference is spelled the same way that it's spelled in English. So difference is spelled the same way in English as in French, but he changed it to include an A because it's pronounced difference in English and, or in French, and he was trying to show how there's not only the difference between the words, but there's this uh, deference between the words, a deferral of meaning. Remember the hierarchy there. So again, deconstruction is to explore the meaning of words, and it's pushing us to get to the place where we would say that words don't have one single definite meaning. So language is ambiguous. And if you want to write that down, uh, Jacques Derrida, language is ambiguous. We can't really understand what words mean. That's the philosophy behind all of this. Uh, for example, in a critical theory book, uh, they look at a, a sentence like this. Uh, you can see at the top of the graphic there, it says, time flies like an arrow. If I said, oh, my granddaughter, she's already eight months old. I feel like she was just born. Time flies like an arrow. Time goes really fast, right? But uh, according to the critical theory book, how do I know that that sentence or that statement doesn't mean time flies? Like, uh, Little flies are out there, and you need to time them. You need to time how fast they go. Time flies like an arrow. Time them as if they were arrows. Or what if it meant that there were little guys called time flies, and they really like arrows? So time flies like arrows. So this thinking that we can never really understand the meaning of words or the meaning of a text. And then we pull that to Christianity and we say, okay, since the meaning of words is subject to many different ideas and constructs, uh, it's based upon the reader's experience. And then we say, oh, well, that must mean that the word of God is subject to the reader's experience. So you see the connection there. There's this, you know, words we can't really understand what they mean. Uh, it's all subject to the reader's experience. And then we open up the scriptures and we say, bummer. You can't really understand what it means, right? It's all based on the reader's experience. Well, we know that's not true, but that's what this ideology is saying. So if you want to jot that down, that the bottom line is that they're saying we can never really understand what the scripture means, and it's subject to the reader's experience. Again, we know that's not true. Uh, Albert Moeller talking about this, talking about deconstruction. Uh, he's saying the deconstructionist, he says the biblical text, the deconstructionist argue, has to be understood in terms of modern understanding. Psychology, anthropology, philosophy, cultural studies have something to bring to the interpretation of the text, the deconstructionist would argue. Uh, something to tell us which the human authors of scriptures miss because even the authors, uh, the deconstructionists would say, don't really know what they're saying. In other words, one may start with what is said, but now we ourselves can decide what it means. Uh, we don't operate like that, but that's the way they want to approach the word of God, as if you can't really tell what it means because it can mean whatever it wants to whomever it wants. Uh, Moeller also writes, deconstructionism has filtered down to the popular culture, even to those who have never heard of Jacques Derrida. 
but have nonetheless, have been nonetheless infected with this postmodern mentality and this subtle form of subversive relativism and subjectivism. You can hear Derrida in the discourse of adolescence in the mall. You can hear it in the conversation of the nightly news. People saying, oh, well, we can't really know what that means. And you have your truth, I have my truth. There are many truths out there, and differing truths can be true at the same time, which we know is illogical and absurd. Uh, according to Jamin Hubner, in his book, Deconstructing Evangelicalism, the reason that this deconstruction has come against the church, so to speak, is the philosophical idea is rooted in words, right? And Bible-believing Christians are focused on the scripture or on the word. So we are people of the book, and he would say that is why this is so appropriate for Christianity, because they want to show that you can't really get uh, the author's meaning, God's meaning, the meaning from the text. According to gotquestions.org, deconstruction is the heading most recently applied to the process of questioning, doubting, and ultimately rejecting aspects of Christian faith. Uh, this is an application of deconstructionism, an approach that claims to disassemble beliefs or ideas while assuming their meanings are inherently subjective. And we just saw that. Modern deconstruction usually means replacing uncomfortable tenets with culturally or personally popular ideas. So deconstruction, again, is you look at the faith and the things that don't resonate with you, things that you don't feel uh, are true of your experience, you set those things aside. And if you just want to jot it down as something like that in your own words, where you look at the text and you say, yeah, I'm not feeling it. I'm going to set that one aside. I deconstruct that. I take that one off. That's not my truth. Here's a, a, a way to really uh, condense it down to an oversimplified view, but this would be sufficient if you want to explain it to somebody. You say the Bible says something about a topic, about an issue, whatever. Uh, the Bible's teaching about that topic is not consistent with my experience. So I get to discard what the Bible says about that. And when we do that, we're deconstructing our faith. So when we look at the Christian religion, when we look at the scriptures and we say, you know, this is what the Bible says, I don't feel that, or that's not my experience, I have the right uh, I should be able to set that inside. And that's what deconstructing the faith really is. So, why do people deconstruct? And you can write down these A, B, C, D if you want, because this is helpful. Why do they deconstruct? A, because we hit tough truths in the Bible, right? I mean, the Bible is loaded with tough truths, and we would be lying to say that it's not. Uh, so, there are teachings about hell. Uh, about the fact that if someone dies without uh, being reconciled to God through faith in Christ, uh, if they die in their sins, they'll be shut out from the presence of God eternally. That's a really tough truth. But that's what the Bible teaches. And when people read that and they don't like that, they deconstruct and they say, I no longer believe in hell. I identify as a Christian, but I've deconstructed. I no longer believe in hell. 
or even the atonement, uh, the fact that God is angry with sin, the fact that God's wrath is poured out against sin. They don't like that. Uh, the fact that God would punish his son for the sake of our sin. How could a father punish his son like that? So they don't like ideas about the atonement. They deconstruct, they set that aside, they say, I no longer believe in that. So the list goes on and on, as you can see, as we hit tough truths in the Bible. The next one is uh, B, if you want to jot something like this down, that uh, biblical concepts are no longer culturally acceptable. So just, you know, culture, what's culturally acceptable, you can jot down. Uh, there are uh, teachings, ideas, beliefs in the scriptures that are just not culturally acceptable anymore. Uh, teachings and beliefs concerning sexuality and gender or, you know, pro-life issues instead of pro-abortion issues. These are not culturally acceptable. And so people say, you know, that's not my experience anymore, so I disagree with the Bible's teaching on this, that, and the other, therefore I will deconstruct and set those things aside. Another reason is because people just want to live their own way. So you could put that down for C. They just want to live their own way. I mean, there are people out there that if you truly said to them, you know, hey, if I could answer all of your intellectual questions about the existence of God and the fact that he's communicated through the scriptures, uh, would you then be a follower of Christ? Would you then believe? And, you know, people who would fall into this category would say, no, uh, not, it's not an intellectual issue. It's an issue of the will. They just don't want to do what the Bible calls them to do. They don't want any authority in their life. They don't like God's authority. They don't like the authority of Scripture. And finally, uh, D is people will deconstruct because they've been hurt by the church. And by the church usually means people in the church. There's been difficult relationships. There's been pain that's taken place. And so they say, you know, I no longer want to be a part of that. I no longer want to identify with God and with Christ because of the pain that I've experienced uh, from the people of God. And we know that that happens. We as sinners, you know, uh, redeemed sinners, we interface with one another. We mess up. We don't uh, behave as we should as Christ's representatives. And we do hurt one another and people will deconstruct because of that. There are other terms that are associated with the deconstruction movement. Uh, one is exvangelical. Instead of evangelical, that's on your outline. You can jot that down if you want. You just take evangelical and put an X in there. And the purpose of the term exvangelical is to show that people want a distance between themselves and, you know, uh, traditional evangelicalism. They're saying, you know, I no longer believe in those things. I'm moving away from the common beliefs of evangelicalism. Or uh, progressive Christianity is another one. Uh, that's a Christianity that wants to focus more on social justice, 
on environmental issues, climate change, things like that. And so they'll pull away from uh, what the text of Scripture says, and they'll begin to focus more on issues of the day, things that they think are more relevant or, you know, more pressing than what the Scripture reveals about, you know, the main things that we should be focused on. So those are progressive Christians. Uh, the main, I'd say the main proponent of deconstructionism or the main voice, really, is a man named Richard Rohr. You can write down his name. You uh, might hear of him in the future, or at least you'll be aware of who he is, Father Richard Rohr. He's an American Franciscan priest, and he was called by PBS as one of the most popular spirituality authors and speakers in the world. He is very popular and he's a big voice behind this deconstruction exvangelical movement. Uh, he again has uh, influenced all sorts of people. He's been well received by many people. They love his thought and they love his teaching. Now, what he basically says, and you might want to write down those three bolded words, the construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction, because that's really foundational to all of this. Uh, he would say that, you know, you begin with your construction. You have your historic Christian position, let's say. You have the faith that you were raised in, you know, maybe the faith that they teach here at Compass Bible Church. And that's like a house. So you have the construction of a house. But anybody would know that's a homeowner or even, you know, renting a house or whatever. As time goes on, your houses need a remodel, Right? Your, you know, windows need to be replaced. Your doors get creaky. I mean, there's problems with the house. So that's when you do deconstruction. You look at your house and you say, what is wrong with the house? What's broken in or with this house? What needs to be changed or renovated in this house? And the things that you find to be broken uh, through your experience or what, through what culture said, you take those things down. And then you reconstruct. Uh, you look at your experience, you look at the teaching of other religions, you look at art and philosophy and all sorts of different things, and you rebuild, you remodel, so to speak. You make a better house, he would say, and this is the mature, the right thing, the most spiritual thing to do, according to Richard Rohr, is to rebuild and kind of create your own new and, as he would say, better package. He has a popular book out called The Universal Christ. Uh, he's reconstructed and he's come to the conclusion in his reconstruction that Christ is in everything. Everything is the Christ. Uh, it's a non-judgmental view. Uh, Jesus is the Christ, he would say. And Buddha is the Christ. And Muhammad is the Christ. And I'm the Christ, and you're the Christ. Uh, we're all the Christ. And that's his reconstructed view, and the deconstructionists love this thinking again because you don't have to have a judgmental or critical attitude towards anyone or anything. And I guess if his teaching was correct, that would mean that Hitler's Christ, and so is Putin, right? Because everything is the Christ. 
Another big voice, and you can uh, write her name down, is Phyllis Tickle. Phyllis Tickle. She's a big voice in the deconstruction movement, and a lot of people who are, you know, really into this and um, advocating for this, uh, teaching younger people to do this, they read the writings and the work of Phyllis Tickle. Uh, Phyllis Tickle was the founding editor of the religious department at Publishers Weekly. It's interesting because she has no formal religious training, but she got this job. Uh, she is widely quoted by many media outlets, including uh, Newsweek, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, New York Times, USA Today, CNN, C-SPAN, PBS, the list goes on and on. Uh, it's been said of her that over the past generation, no one has written more deeply and spoken more widely about the contours of American faith and spirituality than Phyllis Tickle. So she is a big voice. And again, the deconstructionists love the teaching of Phyllis Tickle. She has a book called The Great Emergence. And it's interesting because in the book, The Great Emergence, she says that there are these 500-year stages uh, in the Judeo-Christian faith. And she takes it all the way back to the beginning. But she says, for example, uh, with the appearance of Christ, with the appearance of Jesus, uh, that was the great transformation uh, then she says, after that, about 500 years later, there was a, a change in the church due to Gregory the Great. And then about 500 years after that, there was another change, and she calls it the Great Schism. And then about 500 years after that, there was the Great Reformation, and that was you know, when Martin Luther rebelled against uh, Catholicism. And she says, now 500 years later, we are primed historically for another great change. And she calls that the great emergence. And we don't know what that is, but she says, like, through these 500-year periods, the church does what she calls a rummage sale where you just look at all the junk in your house, you look at all the things that you don't like anymore, and you sell them off, you get rid of them, you ditch them, because they're no longer true. I mean, it sounds great, right? But if you look back at the teaching of the early church fathers, it's the same gospel. So it can't be that simplified, but this appeals to the deconstructionists because they're now waiting to reset everything and to come out with a new Christianity, a new faith. Uh, Phyllis Tickle says in The Great Emergence, she says, even many of the most diehard Protestants among us have grown suspicious of Scripture and Scripture only. We question what the words mean, literally, metaphorically, actually. We question which words do and do not belong in Scripture. And the purity of the editorial line of dissent of those that do. We begin to refer to Luther's principle of sola scriptura, scriptura sola, as having been little more than the creation of a paper pope and a place of flesh and blood one. And even as we speak, the authority that has been in place for 500 years withers away in our hands. So she would say, remember the last 500-year one, the Great Reformation was all about the Word of God. Now it's time to flesh that. We're over it with the Word of God. 
the sola scriptura, the scripture and scripture only. And you can see how this appeals to the deconstructionists. So if you want to just jot down with Phyllis Tickle, you can say the great emergence and it's time to reset, get rid of the word of God as being our authoritative voice or our authority. And that's what she teaches and that's what they, uh, they really uh, enjoy hearing. Uh, David Gushy, a proponent of deconstruction, deconstructionism, says, you know, evangelicals, post-evangelicals, uh, post-evangelical is another way of saying an ex-evangelical, the ones who have distanced themselves from evangelicalism, post-evangelicals are no longer able to accept exaggerated claims about the inerrancy and all-sufficiency of the Bible. So he's saying we're at the point where we can't uh, have the scripture as authority anymore. If we hang in there with Christianity, if we're still going to be Christians, if we're not going to discard the faith altogether, we need a new approach to listening for God's voice and discerning God's will. We need a new way to hear God's will and God's voice. And really, if you continue to read his writings, it's basically listening to the pulse, the vibe of culture. And that's the way that God would speak to us. Uh, Jamin Hubner in Deconstructing Evangelicalism, uh, as you can see about in the middle of that slide, speaking about the construction, deconstruction, reconstruction ideology of Richard Rohr, he says conservative evangelicals, so that would be us, we're like a grumpy old homeowner <laughs> who placates his kids by painting a few things and changing the light bulbs, but refuses to get new kitchen cabinets remove that dysfunctional wall, or fix the roof that's been sagging or leaking for years. See, we keep holding on to this is what the scripture says, and we're that grumpy old homeowner. Even though it's falling apart culturally, and everybody can see it, we just won't let go of it. So that's the, the teaching, the push behind the deconstruction movement. And so this is really what they would say if you want to jot something like this down. This is kind of the summary of the deconstructionist ideology, that it's time for us to ditch the scripture as our ultimate authority. I mean, come on, it's over. We're done with this. It's time for a new thing. We need to figure things out on our own. It's time for us all to emerge from this uh, period and to deconstruct. And again, this is a very popular ideology right now, and it is coming in like a wave to the church. And that's why the second point is, and you can jot this down, is we need to observe deconstruction's impact. We need to observe the impact of this because it is making, a, uh, it's having a tremendous effect upon Christianity, as I said. Uh, Blake Chastain, 2016, uh, started a hashtag, exvangelical. And if you're not familiar with social media, when you have a hashtag, it's kind of like a big bucket that everything goes into. Uh, he also started the Exvangelical podcast. So it's a place, he would say, for people who are disconstructed deconstructing for ex-evangelicals to get together and to talk about their stories, why they're rejecting the authority of God and the authority of the scripture. And again, this is popular and it's really impacting young people. 
there's a Deconstructionist podcast. Uh, one of the hosts of the Deconstructionist podcast, uh, Adam Narlock, says, if you believe in any kind of idea of truth, there is no way that you can corner that market in one stream. He's just saying there's no possible way that one religion is the truth and has the truth. And there's no way that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he says, if you believe that, it's all about you and your ego. He says, if you're not willing to reconstruct with other ideologies, you have an ego defense project. And again, this is appealing to many people. Uh, CBS, CBS News just recently uh, put out a show called Deconstructing My Religion. And a lot of this is based on the, the D category, people who were hurt by the church or hurt by people in the church, and now they're deconstructing the Christian faith. You can watch that online if you search for it. Uh, uh, the fastest growing group of religious people in the United States, according to the Pew Research Center, is people who are called the nuns. Uh, it's like when you check a box, you're filling out a form, and it says, what's your religion? Christianity, Catholicism, you know, Islam, whatever, and you check none. None. Uh, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I just don't have a religion. This is the fastest growing group in the United States right now, and deconstruction has had a big impact on that. The Gallup poll says for the first time in 80 years, the 80-year history of the Gallup poll, uh, church membership has dropped to less than 50%. So this is really impacting people, our younger people especially, and it's something that we have to be aware of. Uh, according to the Great Opportunity Report, if trends continue as they are, by the year 2050, there will be 35 million youth who were raised in Christian homes that have deconstructed, so to speak, that will disaffiliate from Christianity, which is over a million people a year. Uh, the number of Christians in the U.S. population will have dropped from 73% to 59%. And by 2050, there will be 50 million people who call themselves nuns. Uh, which is a big percentage. And again, that's if these trends continue. So we've got to see how impactful this is. And this is not something that we can ignore or uh, turn our back on. Uh, Jamin Hubner, in his book, Deconstructing Evangelical, points out that 6,500 people a day deconstruct from the Christian faith. Every single day. 6,500 people deconstruct, no longer identify as Christians. That's a lot of people every 24 hours. And again, the whole premise is you've got your truth, I've got my truth. You can't judge my truth, I don't judge your truth. It doesn't matter if there is truth because all truth is truth. Remember the universal Christ. It's time to emerge from this old way of thinking. And that's really uh, the impact that this is having. Now, we have to see the fact also that this is very appealing, uh, especially to younger people, especially those who are on social media. 
And younger people spend a lot of time on social media. I, I'm an older person and I do as well. I mean, there's a lot out there on social media. You've got the internet, you've got things like Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all these different sources to be able to connect with one another. And it's appealing, especially to younger people. Uh, according to John Marriott, uh, he says, it seems that not a month goes by without a well-known Christian announcing on social media that they have left the faith. More troubling, but less sensational, is that for each celebrity deconversion, there are hundreds of unknown believers who deconvert that don't get the headlines Deconversion from Christianity is a growing and troubling trend, and it's one that we can no longer ignore, according to this author. So uh, the internet and social media is filled with deconstruction stories. And you can even jot that down if you want, just deconstruction stories. And these are very appealing, especially to younger people. They'll say, you know, you need to tell your story. You need to go on your social media outlets and you need to let everyone know your deconversion, your deconstruction, your ex-evangelical story. And then when they do that, when they tell their story about why they have departed from Christianity, why they're no longer evangelicals, they're immediately applauded. You know, great, good for you. That's so good. You told your truth. I'm glad you shared your truth. And they get a lot of positive feedback for doing so. So it makes this very appealing, especially to younger people. Now, we're going to look at a few people who have celebrity deconstructions. Again, don't feel like you need to write these down. Uh, we're going to go through a few of them real quick and just show you how trending this is, how big this is, how this is happening to a huge degree. Uh, if you've ever heard of Joshua Harris, he wrote a book in the late 1990s called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which was super popular, uh, sold many, many, many copies. He went on to be the lead pastor of Covenant Life Church, uh, which is a church in the Sovereign Grace Ministries. He had a big, thriving church there. And recently, he came out on Instagram and said, I've deconstructed. I'm no longer a Christian. Uh, and, you know, when people deconstruct, they have these amazing photos like Joshua Harris's picture there, which are appealing to people, especially younger people. You know, they see this guy in this beautiful picture and they think, wow, he looks really cool. I mean, that looks kind of neat. I, I like that. I see peace and tranquility there. And he says, you know, I hate to say it, but you guys, you know, I've deconstructed. I'm no longer a Christian. Uh, he actually, which I thought was interesting, so just threw this in, but after he deconstructed, he started selling a deconstruction starter pack for $275. Yeah. He received a lot of criticism for that, and then he shut it down. But, uh, yeah. Uh, Rhett and Link, if you've heard of Rhett and Link, these guys are two big YouTubers, and a lot of younger people watch YouTube videos. I mean, you know, we uh, maybe watch TV or whatever. People watch YouTube videos now, more than they watch TV even. So Rhett and Link are big YouTubers. Uh, these guys, they were actually uh, missionaries, they call themselves. Uh, missionaries, they worked full-time with Campus Crusade for Christ, 
crew. And uh, they went on then to use their very charismatic talents to start this YouTube uh, podcast, this YouTube show called Good Mythical Morning. And they gained uh, millions of followers. Millions of people followed them. In fact, according to The Guardian, they're in the top 10 YouTubers of all time. They, the two of them together, just by hosting this YouTube show, like videoing themselves and because of the ad money that they get, they earn $20 million a year as YouTubers. They put their show online and they earn $20 million a year in revenue. That's how many people are following them. Again, they used to be missionaries. They used to work for Campus Crusade for Christ. They both have over an hour-long episode about their own deconstruction, uh, how they've left the church. The first is uh, Rhett's deconstruction, and the second is Link's deconstruction. And, you know, people are watching this, especially younger people. They're watching this, and these are their celebrity heroes, right? who are rejecting and walking away from the historical Christian position. Uh, Glennon Doyle, if you've heard of her, you might have heard of her because her books are very uh, well-received. Uh, one of her latest books, Untamed, has more than two million copies sold. Uh, if you've heard of the pop singer Adele, Adele said after reading Untamed, it's as if I just flew into my body for the very first time. She loved this book so much. Uh, Oprah Winfrey calls her one of the most awakened leaders who are using their voices and talent to elevate humanity. And the Biden campaign even sought out her help in reaching suburban women. They call her their knight in shining armor. So she is a big voice, Glennon Doyle. She's written these books, Love Warrior, Carry On Warrior, and Untamed, Untamed, the one that sold over two million copies. So big voice here. Uh, she was on, she's been on many, many uh, different media sources and media outlets. This one here, it's a TED Talk, Work in Life. Uh, they explain how Glennon Doyle used to say, I'm a Christian, I'm straight, and I'm an addict. Uh, she was a, a blogger that was a Christian blogger that had a very successful Christian blog. And she since deconstructed, but her voice has gotten even bigger uh, Alyssa Childers, Alisa Childers, uh, she wrote about Glennon Doyle that, you know, Glennon's um, emphasis is on being happy, being fulfilled, doing whatever you want, making sure you're fulfilling your inner desires. Uh, she says, even of um, parenting, there's no greater burden on a child than the unlived life of a parent. So the thing that's most harmful for a child is to see that their parents aren't, their mother is not fulfilling their inmost desire. And it's that thinking that caused her to divorce her husband. Uh, Glennon says, she says, concerning Adam and Eve, she says, concerning Eve, she says, you know, maybe Eve was never meant to be a warning. Maybe she was meant to be our model. She says, you need to own your wanting, you need to eat the apple. So that's her encouragement, this revolutionary, widely received encouragement to women is you need to eat the apple. 
She's got a uh, website, podcast, momistry, and uh, she explains in her about there that she was feeling tension in life. She was feeling like she was going to boil over until she went into a conference that she was speaking at, looked across the room, and said, there she is, and fell in love with her now wife, Abby. She's deconstructed. Kevin Max, uh, he is one of the members of DC Talk. That's an old Christian um, music group who were very widely received. They had an album called Jesus Freak that they would play everywhere. You know, secular places would play it. I remember hearing it as I walked through the malls. Uh, Jesus Freak was everywhere. In fact, uh, Jesus Freak is, they say, considered to be one of the greatest and most influential albums in the history of contemporary Christian music. So these guys made a big difference, Kevin Max being one of their members. Uh, Kevin came out on Twitter and said, I am now exvangelical. And he also said, I believe in the universal Christ, uh, the Christ of Richard Rohr, the Christ that is in everything. Michael Gungor, uh, another musician, he and his wife had a Christian band called Gungor. Uh, they were nominated in 2011 for Best Rock or Rap Gospel Album. Uh, he led worship at a mega church. Uh, he too has come out on Twitter. He said, I believe in the universal Christ. He said, Jesus is the Christ. Buddha is the Christ. Muhammad is the Christ. You are the Christ. I am the Christ. He too has deconstructed. Audrey Assad, another Christian musician. Uh, she had an album that was released and named on Amazon as one of the best of Christian music in 2010. Uh, she's been on tour with people like Chris Tomlin and Jars of Clay. She too came out on social media and said, I've deconstructed, I'm no longer a Christian. Don't consider me to be a Christian anymore. Marty Sampson. Marty Sampson is one of the founding uh, people of Hillsong, Hillsong worship, Hillsong music. A lot of the popular Christian worship songs now are Hillsong songs. Uh, Marty Sampson also came out on social media and said, I'm no longer a Christian. I've deconstructed. Don't consider me to be a Christian anymore. Uh, he said, hey, Christians, I love you, but I am not one of you. So don't count me as one of your members any longer. Uh, Jen Hatmaker, if you've heard of her, uh, her books are very widely received. I remember seeing For the Love in the, the airport. You know, you get those few books. Uh, they always have the religious section in the airport, in I guess in case someone has a fear of flying. But uh, I always saw her books in the airport, the For the Love. Uh, she was really primed to be like the next great female leader in the church. Uh, Beth Moore was planning to have her basically replaced by Jen Hatmaker. She was going to lead or headline the Women of Faith Tours, and she came out um, and said that, you know, she doesn't see any uh, critique. She doesn't see any need for people who are LGBTQ to change their thinking uh, according to the scripture. 
on Peter Enns' podcast. Peter Enns is another big voice in the deconstruction movement. Uh, Jen came out and said, for a season, that sense of certainty was wonderful. The sense of certainty where you read the Bible and you say, this is what the Bible says, this is what God wants me to do. And then she added, but of course, upon scrutiny, it breaks down because as always, we come to scripture and the things that we say are certain are obviously not certain to other people. So if there are other people, people of other faiths, people of other practices that wouldn't uh, have the same experience when reading the Bible, that might be convicted when reading the Bible or see that they need to change their thinking or beliefs, she says now it only works in an echo chamber. It doesn't work. If it doesn't work for everyone, universal Christ, remember, then it doesn't work at all and she's deconstructed. Uh, another one is Abraham Piper. Now, this is the son, one of the sons of the amazing John Piper. John Piper is such a great uh, pastor, Bible teacher, author, and one of his sons has deconstructed. Uh, he's often, you know, used as an example in the news. It's funny because I was listening to Sean McDowell, and Sean McDowell said, you know, the news never comes to me and says, how does it feel to be an apologist since your dad was an apologist, to follow in your dad's footsteps? He said, never. But when you have a, a great man like John Piper, Piper and his son deconstructs, the news is all over it. I mean, they want everyone to know that. Uh, Abraham has a TikTok channel. He has almost 2 million followers on this channel. And he posts these short little videos where he deconstructs his faith, where he uh, attacks, basically, the scripture and the historical Christian position. Uh, I'm going to play a little clip from one of his videos where you'll just see his angst towards the Word of God. Remember, uh, deconstruction, they're saying that God has no authority, that he has not communicated through the Scriptures. The Scriptures are not authoritative. You want to know one of the silliest things about being raised devoutly evangelical? Children are expected to read the Bible. If that doesn't seem weird to you, stick with me for a second. You might think of the Bible as, for God so loved the world, or that one emotionally lucid moment Paul had when he wrote about love and now everyone reads it at their weddings. But those are the boring parts, to a kid anyways. While other kids are learning to read with comics or whatever normal parents have around the house, here fundy kids are, six, seven, eight years old, devouring stories of Jezebel being defenestrated and then eaten by dogs, or Judas's bowels bursting out, or Noah's sons laughing at him when he was passed out drunk and naked, or Lot's daughters who got him drunk and screwed him so they could have babies. And those are just a few highlights off the top of my head, decades later. The good book is full of children's stories like these. It's basically Game of Thrones, except if you don't read it, you go to hell. I almost forgot about all the times I went back to Song of Solomon so I could read about breasts. I'm thinking maybe the message of God's word didn't land on me like it was supposed to. Hey, if you're deconstructing, good for you. There are a lot of serious thinkers out there that can help you navigate this stuff. But if you just want to roll your, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Stick around if you want to. I did edit like one microsecond out of that to pull the profanity from it. But uh, you can see the angst towards the scripture, towards the word of God there. Uh, according to Four Causes for Deconstruction, there's a wave of hashtag exvangelical podcasters and TikTok stars who are following in the wake with a whole cottage industry uh, to welcome and cheer them on. There's clout in distancing oneself from outdated views of sex and gender 
an obscure Bible with talking snakes and forbidden shellfish and offensive doctrines like wrath and hell. This is big and this is trending. So you can see the allure of this, especially to the younger people amongst us. And what we need to do is we need to realize, you know what, we can see what the root problem is here. So the fourth point is we need to point out deconstruction's root problem. And as we'll see, the root problem, it's really not that complicated. As we look at all these different terms and all these ways of packaging things, we can simplify it to things that we are very comfortable and very familiar with. Uh, a great place to go is the four soils. Remember of the, the parable of the four soils that Jesus taught about? Uh, we find that, uh, for example, in Matthew 13, 18 through 23, when Jesus explains the parable of the four soils. Uh, he says, hear the parable of the sower, so the ones who's, who's planting seed or sowing seed. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Okay. We're going to set that one aside because that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, he's just saying that's people who hear the gospel, hear the word of God, and say, yeah, I want nothing to do with it and move on. But then we have the second and third soil here. Uh, he says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Maybe they're even a Christian celebrity, right? Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, on account of the scripture, immediately he falls away. We see that, right? This is something that Jesus said would happen. This was written 2,000 years ago. This is nothing bizarre and it's nothing that we can't handle. This is normative. Jesus said this would happen. There would be people who spring up and look really good and then they fall away. They say, you know what? I, I'm not into this. I can't handle the persecution on account of the word of God. Next one, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Same thing, you've got people who hear it and they come up, but the thorns, the, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world, just really loving the world and the things of the world choke out their, their growth, and it proves that they were never really saved. And Jesus said, again, 2,000 years ago, this would happen. Uh, finally, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So that's a reference worth writing down, Matthew 8, 13, 18 through 23, and just referring to that. Remember, Jesus said this was going to happen. Jesus said 2,000 years ago, people would deconstruct, right? They would say, I no longer am a part of the evangelical faith, the Christian faith, the historical Christian position because of these things. And so if we look uh, at soil two and three and think about our reasons for deconstructing in the beginning, uh, as Jesus said about soil two, uh, number two, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. 
remember the tough truths. Uh, things like hell that are hard and atonement and other tough biblical truths or concepts that no longer are culturally acceptable. Uh, gender issues, sexuality issues, issues about life. Those are the things that cause soil to, to fall away. And that's what's happened. And then soil three, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, just, you know, wanting to live your own life, not to have God as your authority. The cares of the world, I want to do whatever I want to do. Uh, soil three there, just saying, you know, I want to live my own life. Or even those, in a sense, that have been hurt by the church or hurt by Christians and leave, depart from the historical Christian position because, yes, there are people who have been hurt, and we're going to look at that in a second, but it's no reason to leave your Savior and to leave your God, to depart from the Savior who loved you to his own death, right? Again, this is nothing new. Uh, the Apostle John wrote that these things would happen in 1 John 2, 19. There are people who went out from us, but they were not of us. They weren't the fourth soil. For if they had been, they would have continued. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Nothing new. The scripture said this kind of stuff would happen. The whole thing of uh, deconstructing and then reconstructing, building a new uh, ideology from different faith uh, groups, from different experiences, is very, uh, a very old ideology. Uh, we see this even addressed in Colossians, this desire of the church at Colossae to syncretize, to reconstruct, to combine the teaching of other ideologies with the teaching of Christ. And that's why one of the reasons why we're going to be studying Colossians in the fall and spring. We're going to see that Jesus is above all else. That's the title of our story, of our study. Jesus is above all else. He is the one. And we see that in Colossians. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Don't be taken captive by these philosophical ideologies according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, not according to Jesus. This was written 2,000 years ago, Colossians 2, 8 through 10. It says, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of Deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and, there's the word, authority. He is our authority, and his word is our authority, and that's what the deconstruction movement does not like. They don't like the authority of God, and they do not like the authority of Scripture, and they want to move on from that. So if you are doubting, if you hit a pocket of doubt or you know somebody who's hit a pocket of doubt, you got to be equipped to deal with these things. You've got to be equipped to tackle this. And so the fifth point here is equip yourself to think through doubt. We need to equip ourselves to think through these doubts when they come. And you can jot that point down because it'll be important to remember that as we look back. Uh, Philippians 2.12 says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, applying that we need to be able to think through things. We've got to be equipped to think through things as we're confronted with ideologies in our Christian life. 
Uh, one example that I really uh, like of how to do this right uh, comes from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer is definitely one of my heroes of the faith, uh, just an amazing godly man who has really uh, connected with these kinds of, of thinking, and he shares in his preface to the book, True Spirituality, how he hit a time of doubt. But instead of deconstructing, uh, what Francis Schaeffer did is he, did, uh, he went and he went back to the basics. He went back to the basics and thought through things logically. And that's what we need to help ourselves and to help others to do as well. I'm going to read the next five slides, which are pulled from the preface of True Spirituality. Uh, he says, in 51 and 52, I faced a spiritual crisis in my own life. I had become a Christian from agnosticism many years and tell them they don't want to come here. They need to, you know, repent of their sins and get their lives right with God. And Abraham said, no, nah, it's why. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them see what the scripture says. And the rich man said, no, if someone uh, rises from the dead, then they'll repent. And Abraham said, no, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets... They're not going to be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If we can be convinced that God has communicated through the scripture, that's sufficient. We then will submit and align our lives with the teaching of the Bible. Uh, if the basics are true, then we yield our thinking and our desires to the word of God. Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, said that no prophecy of Scripture. Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not from someone's own interpretation. Derrida was wrong, right? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. We can know what the word says. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word, and we can know what it says, and we can rightly respond to it. We've got to, as we're helping people think through these things, even ourselves, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing, in the words of Sean McDowell. Is there a God, and has he communicated through the scriptures? If so, and if so, we'll deal with the rest. We'll work through the rest. Uh, we'll wrestle through the rest of the things. Uh, there's a great passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, just these three verses that so brilliantly explain all the truth, in a sense, that one needs to know to be saved. Uh, Paul saying here, I delivered to you as of first importance. This is so important, uh, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, Jesus died for your sins. Do you realize how much is in that statement? That you are a sinner. If you are not right with God, you'll be separated from God eternally. But Jesus came and lived and died so that you could be reconciled through what he did on the cross. Uh, and it's in accordance with the scriptures. That's what the passage says. That's the authority that we go to for these truths. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures because the scriptures are authoritative and they contain, they are the very word of God. And that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then 
to the 12. And then he went on to appear to others, reminding us that all of this, this historical Christian faith is rooted in genuine history. It's not mythological. It doesn't need to be reset. This is history, and this is true. So we encourage people to ask questions. Uh, for example, like our Women in Faith ministry. We invite people and we say, ask us all the questions that we, you can. And we'll think through, we'll wrestle through those questions. And we start with questions about God. Uh, then we go to questions about the Bible and has God really communicated through the scriptures. And I know you can't see the, the um, titles on the list, but I'll send those to your group leaders and they can share them with you. There are also sorts of great resources out there to equip ourselves to be able to address those things. I love this in Mark 9, 21 through 24. There was a man uh, whose son was demon-possessed, and he came to Jesus, and he said to Jesus, uh, you know, uh, you need to heal my son. He said to Jesus there, uh, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, he said, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father, the man responded, I believe, help my unbelief. And, you know, when we have unbelief, when we have doubt as well, we need to do what this man did. He leaned into Jesus. He said, Jesus, you are God. You've communicated through the scripture. I believe, but help. Help me to lean into you, and we need to help ourselves and help others to lean into Jesus the way that Francis Schaeffer did when we have doubt. And the last point here is we need to, the scripture calls us to love those who are doubting. Love those who are doubting, those who are tempted to deconstruct, those who are going through the deconstruction process, those who have even deconstructed. We need to love them. Uh, we see this in the book of Jude. Uh, Jude, verse 23, says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, what a great memory verse for all of us, right? We could probably memorize it right now. Jude 23, and have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on them the same way that Jesus had mercy on you. We can't shun them or be mean to them or mock them or unfriend them. We need to have mercy on them. We need to love them. Now, we can't change our doctrine. We can't change what the Bible says, but we can change the way that we treat them. We can change our relationships with them. We can be good friends, uh, good Christians to them, so to speak. I found this stat to be incredibly interesting. In some research concerning the deconstruction movement, it was determined that 80%, 80%, 8 out of every 10, 4 out of every 5, 42 out of 50 of the deconverts that were studied said they deconverted ultimately because of frustration with Christians. And it wasn't because Christians were doing bad things. But, it said, but the data said that frustration in how their fellow Christians reacted to their doubts. That's huge. How do we respond to people when they have doubt, when they're confused, when they're hurting, when they're broken, when they're wrestling through these truths? Do we love them? 
Do we have mercy upon them? If we did, it might help some of them not to get to that point. We need to listen to them. Four last things here. We need to listen to them. We need to listen carefully. You don't set, you know, on your calendar, I'll meet with them at Starbucks for 30 minutes, and they're only getting 30 minutes, and if I can't convince them in 30 minutes, it's done. Not a one and done thing here. We need to listen to them and hear their story. Maybe spend a meeting with them just keeping your own mouth shut and listening to what they say, uh, hearing their pain, hearing what they've gone through, showing them that you really care about them and that you're sorry for what they're going through and maybe even what happened to cause them to get there. Uh, apologist Sean McDowell talks about this when he talks to people who are deconstructing or have deconstructed. He says, you know, he lets them know that he loves them and that even though they might have deconstructed, it's not going to change his relationship with them. He still cares about them very much. Uh, he says he'll say things like, if you ever start to doubt, rather than going on your journey, your doubt journey alone, would you invite me to be a part of the conversation? Uh, he says things like, I'm not going to preach at you, I'm going to listen, and then I'll ask questions. And after asking questions, maybe I can give you some perspective on things that you haven't thought about. Not aggressive and harsh. Uh, so many of those who have deconstructed said that after they deconstructed, their church family, quote unquote, gave up on them, discarded them, and barely will say hi to them in the grocery store anymore. We need to ask them thoughtful questions. Uh, as they're explaining things, not in an aggressive way, but in a kind way. Uh, as they're explaining what they've experienced or what they're thinking, we have to say, well, you know, what do you mean by that? What does that mean? How can you explain that in other words? Uh, where did you get that information from? Where's that coming from? Where did you read that or hear that? And, you know, how did those experiences make you feel? Asking them good questions and then getting good answers in response. And we need to speak the truth to them, but we need to speak the truth without freaking out. You know, if they say something that we don't like or we know is contrary to God's revealed plan for life, not looking at them like no one's ever felt this way and you're demon-possessed, you know, but saying, okay, you know, I got that. And people are tempted. And even, you know, Jesus says, you know, that we're tempted in many ways. Uh, Elisa Childers, she's the one that I referenced earlier who was uh, critiquing Glennon Doyle. She's got a great website, elisachilders.com. Um, she almost deconstructed, and she said that she had two friends that reached out to her, and one was fearful and panicking, like, you have to get this right right now. And she said the other one was very kind and very chill about it, like, hey, I don't necessarily have all the answers, but like Sean McDowell responded, I'd love to go on this journey with you, and maybe we can think through it together. Which one do you think she turned to? The kinder one, the one that was more chill about it, the one that was there to really get down in the trenches with her. And she did end up seeing the truth, and her faith is even stronger than ever now. Uh, we need to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves as we're going to meet with these people or talk to these people as we know these people. Pray that God would help us to really love them. Pray that we would think about the love that Jesus showed us while we were yet sinners. Jesus died for us. 
can we love them in the same way? Can we say, God, I will love them as an expression of the great love that you've shown to me? And then we pray for them. God, help them to see. Help them to be willing. Give them courage to face the tough truths, uh, to say no to culture, to be able to deny what they want to do and to get over past hurts. And then when we meet with them, even praying with them, saying, can I pray for you? And acknowledging them and affirming them and how important they are to God. Prayer is important and we need to be patient with them. Again, this probably won't be fixed in 30 minutes. It might not even be fixed in 30 days. But we've got to be patient. We've got to be patient with them, listening to them, being there for them, and not abandoning them. Not saying, you know what, if you disagree with me, I never want to talk to you again. Or I never want to see you again. Because the point is, we want them to get saved, right? Uh, there are all sorts of people that are deconstructing out there, and we want them to get saved the same way that we got saved. We want them to be born again. We want them to be in a right relationship with God. We want them to spend eternity in the presence of God and to enjoy the life that God has for us here now, to enjoy what it means to be indwelt by and led by the Spirit. We want them to get that. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, clearly felt the same way. Uh, he reveals in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, he says, you know, though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Do you consider yourself a servant to all? even those who are doubting, even those who are deconstructing, that you might win more of them. And in the last verse there, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings, that they might be a part of this too, that they might get saved. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. If you look at the, the points from the teaching today, you look at the letters that they begin with, Go down and you'll see the word gospel. And that's just a reminder to us that we do this. We have these hot topics. We think through these tough things. Uh, we have this classroom type setting. Uh, we spend a long time considering what's going on out there that ultimately we might be able to win as many as possible for Christ because we're here for the gospel. Otherwise, God could have translated us the second that we got saved. But he's kept us here. He's kept us here so that we could share the gospel with others. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this amazing group of women. God, thank you for the honor and privilege of being able to grow in the grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus, together with these ladies. God, I pray that we would walk away from this information encouraged. God, I pray that we would truly uh, be effective tools in your tool belt, that we would be able to encourage others, that we would see that this is nothing new, this is an age-old problem, that we would be able to help ourselves and others think about the fact that you exist and you've communicated through the scriptures. And God, please give us a brand new love for those who are hurting. 
God, as you loved us, even when we shook our fist in your face, God, help us to love those who are broken and hurting and deconstructing, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.